0: Lost Talk with Evan Kosny, and you are listening to episode 14. This week on the podcast, we have...
1: I'm Greg Wyshynski, editor of Yahoo Sports Puck Daddy blog, and the co-host of the Puck Soup podcast and the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast.
0: And I'm very excited to have him on. I'm a long-time reader of his work. And let's get right into it. So you went to college... uh, Sorry, you went to the University of Maryland college of journalism. Yeah. When did you decide journalism was the path
1: to you? Oh, um well before that. I was always a huge fan of sports writing. Um my dad would work in New York. Uh he would come home with both the New York uh, Daily News and the North Star Ledger two papers from uh, New York and New Jersey. And um I'd always flip to the back of the sports section and and read it through. I was a huge fan of of uh, of you know beat writing, I was a huge fan of of the rumors columns and uh, and that sort of thing. And then gradually, you know, it branched out. And 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 what really you know tickled my fancy as a writer was Roger Eber, the film critic, who um, you know I started buying his the collected reviews. Uh, his writing really stuck with me and struck me as being uh, showing me that there was a way to write critically about something, but also do it in a really uh, cynical and funny way. And, and sometimes, and also praise something and make it uh, really beautiful in the way that you approach it. So that kind of opened my eyes to, well, what if you did that with sports? And, uh and I decided I, I really wanted to kind of get into that, I, you know, work for my high school paper. And then when I went to Maryland, it was a pretty easy call to explore journalism, even though when I went there, it wasn't for print journalism necessarily, it was for public relations because I was uh, given the information that that was the only way you could get a journalism degree and make money, which might still be the case. I don't know. But I, I, it, the good thing about going there is that even if you went there for, uh, for public relations, you were still given the same sort of training everybody else had as far as being a journalist. Oh,
0: nice. Yeah. yeah. Cause I find most people today, they don't even do the university journalism. They started blogs.
1: No. And that's, that's a great, I mean, you know, when I was in school, the internet boom happened and, and message boards happened. The blog thing didn't happen until I had already been in the business for, you know, a good five or five years. So, Um, it's, it's, it's just interesting how that plays out, um, where you, uh, at the time that seemed like the only path to get into it Mm. was to get a degree or to intern at the Washington Post or whatever. Yeah. It's funny. Like, even though I went through the, the university process, um, to get a journalism degree and worked at a a weekly paper, I I still feel like I went about it in a different way. A lot of my Mm. friends, you know, the only thing they wanted to do was go write for a daily and that never really appealed to me. I have a big, I have a big, uh, uh, allergy towards like a slightly bigger fish in a very crowded pond. I like, I like, you know, kind of being able to, you know, have a small staff and, you know, kind of like with Puck Daddy. Like, I, 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 I much more relish that experience than simply being another name on the masthead at like TSN. Oh, really? No, oh, yeah. I... I mean, it's better. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only better from a pure egotism standpoint, <laughs> but it, it's also better, I just think, because, don't necessarily have to scratch and claw to get your work noticed. I mean, you do, but you don't when it's a different vibe. So like at Puck Daddy, you have to scratch and claw to get your work noticed because you're a hockey writer. But if you're a hockey writer at TSN, you have to scratch and claw to get your work noticed against people who have seniority. That's a different battle. It's it's, it's much tougher to make that argument against somebody who has cachet versus making the argument that, well, what I have is important uh, versus the other sports writers that are at my thing.
0: As the head of pep that do you notice that you do still get that cachet of, do you consider yourself at par with like, not at par, but like, even though you have a smaller pond or a smaller thing, you're still as well known as the you. No, ones. I mean, I
1: think that's the, the beauty of what we do is that I don't know if there is a comparable and that's not to mm. put myself on a pedestal and say, no one compares to me. I'm <laughs> just saying that no one really does what we do. Like mm. it's, it's comedy. It's, uh, it's opinion. It's sometimes breaking news. It's news analysis. It's looking at the work other people are doing and then kind of forming an opinion off that, which is the basis of blogging, which even though it's 2017, there are certain writers who still don't understand that that's a thing that's okay to happen. So I feel like there is no comparison between me and Bob McKenzie or Elliot Friedman because one, because they're better than me, but also because, you know, their function and what they do journalistically is not what I want to do, or not that I could do, and 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 I dare say that like a lot of those people that are in the positions could necessarily strike the balance I strike, where I can be a a hot take guy or write a comedic piece and still you know be in a room with Gary Bettman and and get his ear and, and do a serious piece as well. It's a unique balance, and and you know the only comparison I can make is when other sites have tried to do something like Puck Daddy you know, something like, um, you know, bar down, for example, is the thing I would always use. And and I think that when people see those sites exist and execute the way they execute, they understand how how difficult it is to do it. And I feel better about the fact that we've been able to pull it off for so long.
0: How do you prepare for a season?
1: You know, there's a certain sort of uh, cyclical functionality to, to what you do after a while. And it's not to say that it's it's perfunctory. I mean, I think there's always a creative element to it, but you know, when the previews have to run and you know what, you know, what you have to do as far as, you know, running lists of things, uh, you know, and all the preview elements that go into things. So, I mean, I think things start getting really ratcheted up around training camp, as far as remembering where all the pieces fell during the summer and and what the storylines might be. But as far as preparing for the season, I mean, it, it really is a situation where we don't have the luxury of, of stepping away too much. Like I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, nobody who's worked for Puck daddy has a a cabin to go to for like months and then you disappear and you don't hear from them. Uh, you know, we run stuff throughout the summer. So, I mean, especially like that August project that we do every year Mm -hmm. this year, it was the alternate history, what if project. And like, Mm -hmm. part of the mandate that we have is, you know, we've all been, you know, office drones and, and, uh, we always want to be able to give somebody something to read even if it's August and, and hockey is the last thing on your mind, so it's it's we're always kind of plugged in, even if it's a more a more casual sense in the summer. So um, there's no cramming. We all sort of stay plugged in a little bit.
0: I never really understood that how everyone just casually takes a two month break in the summer. I know. You know how that's just agreed upon by everyone.
1: Yeah, right? it, it makes me one. Want- to have an agent, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's gotta be something contractual where they're five days after free agency starts, like mm-hmm. people just disappear. But Hey, listen, more power to them, man. Like if you can make dough and then, and then, you know, maybe, maybe everybody's vacation time is reserved for a couple months in summer. I don't know. But like, mm-hmm. you know, as I've done the job and, 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 you know, I've been running Puck Daddy since 2008, it's, you know, I've, I've tried to take the pedal off, you know, I have a kid. I have a wife, I, I have a dog, you know, I, I think for my own uh, sanity, taking a break now and again, even in season, which I used to think would be a huge sin is, mm-hmm. is a healthy thing to do. Because I think when, when you're a writer and you deal with the volume of writing that you that you deal with, and for me, it's, you know, upwards of eight things a day sometimes, you just need to recharge occasionally mm-hmm. and, and reset your brain and then attack things from a different, maybe a, a, a different perspective after you get back.
0: No, it's definitely you need those time away. It's, yeah, I feel like it is better to take continuous breaks as opposed to jamming it into that two
1: time. Well, I think they, I think they take the two months off because they genuinely feel that writing the story about Dominic Moore signing a one year contract is beneath them.
0: Well, <laughs> there's a fan base that wants to read about yeah, it, of course, Chris. <laughs> yeah, know.
1: and those guys stay on the stick. I mean, when news breaks, even if they're mm-hmm. on vacation, they're, you know, there's going to be some level of comment from some of those guys. David Martin and hand in Twitter. Yeah, yeah and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 those guys work their tails off to maintain sources and, and break news all season long. So they deserve a break.
0: Mm. So I want to get back to your writing. What do you think goes, what do you think makes me writing?
1: right? Um, it's a good question. I, I mean, obviously the first thing to say is that, and, and I say this as somebody who's been an editor for, you know, close to two decades now and, and been in a position to hire people is that you can just tell sometimes when people have it and they don't. And, and it breaks your heart when people don't, because, You know that they love sports and you know that they have a passion for this thing, but there are just some people that don't have that extra, whether it's level of, of, of analysis or turn of a phrase or, or insight or whatever to be able to really kind of be anything but someone who can, you know, write the most perfunctory pieces. And so I I think inherently good writers there and every good writer is that there's some, just something in the DNA that, that makes you compelling or, or that gives you that extra sensory thing to know what's the important thing in a story. Um, but as far as other good writing, I just, I just feel like, you know, it's about finding your voice and it's, and it's a cliche thing to say, but it takes a while to really find what that balance is. And, you know, you go back and read the stuff I wrote for Deadspin back in the day. Like, it's totally over the top. It's completely, you know, profane and, 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 and outrageous and not something I would write today because I was finding my footing as a comedic sports writer. And I think it takes a while to figure out the right tone and you get it right and you get it wrong and you make mistakes and, and you, you fall on your face and then you, you kind of figure out what, what that approach that you need is. But I think the most important thing is it's just always keep reading and keep exposing yourself to different writing and, and and making yourself better and, 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 uh, you know, not simply just being repetitive. Um, I think, I think good writing is something is writing that surprises you and, and writing that elicits some sort of emotion, whether it's, you know, even if it's apathy, Mm -hmm. you know, something makes you feel something.
0: Mm. Uh, do you find that when you're reading other writers, that you pick up on things that maybe you can
1: bring to your own work? Well, that's the problem with being a writer. It's the same problem as being a film director. Like once you you understand the language of, of, of putting a story together, and once you understand the language of film, you can't go see a film or read a story without seeing where the pieces fit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm able to enjoy writing still, and writing can still, still nonfiction write, writing can still move me. But there's no way to appro- I don't approach it without that sort of extra, huh, well, if you move this here, this would have been more effective. And mm. oh, this is clearly a one source story, or I kind of know where this is coming from. You know mm. what? What you know the, who at the NHLPA is putting this in this guy's ear? Mm. So I, I mean, it, from that aspect of it, it's really tough. But the thing, the the, the writing that's really you know inspired me and, and, and made me you know happy to read it has been stuff that falls outside the old white guy paradigm. you know. I think there's a lot of hockey writing that's happening today, coverage of the, of the women's leagues, um, people of color writing on the game and, and the issues within the game. And to me, that's that's been the most interesting writing because it's obviously not a perspective that I can offer because I'm an old white guy from New Jersey. So, like, <laughs> so I, I, I search out different perspectives. And it's one of the things we have always done on Puck Daddy is you know, through our linking to other articles and featuring a lot of other writers when we do projects is trying to bring in as many different perspectives as uh, perspectives as we can, knowing that the uh, hockey media is very homogenous in its makeup.
0: Mm -hmm. Which uh, we're seeing a little bit of that backlash over uh, what's going on with the athletic and everything. They're hiring great people, but they've been having a lot of.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Like, I I feel like some of that was, is sort of uh, premature. I Mm -hmm. mean, like when, when Myrtle, you know, who I've known for years. We well. used to work at AOL together back in like 2006 mm-hmm. um, when he was taking flack for those, those hires it's, or lack of, of, of diversity in the hiring. It's like the place was, the publication was announced like a week earlier and he said, you know, just give me some time, like let me build a staff. And lo and behold, like I think the Toronto athletic is by far the most diverse and, and, oh, and, sure. and interesting as far as the collection of writers they have. But I think the, 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 the trick with that is they're a startup in order to ensure their success and ensure that they're going to be able to, you know, build a staff and have money to pay everybody and diversify. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of go with the people who have following straight away. So yeah, you know, it's sort of the the dog chasing its own tail. Most of the hockey writers and sports writers are white men Mm -hmm. and they have followings. And because of that, they're hiring white men who have followings to be the flagship faces of this project mm-hmm. um and then after that you hope that they diversify but it's i mean it's it's it speaks to a, a deeper cultural problem about by, that by no means is the athletics doing no of course yeah
0: it's, it's unfortunate like as i said uh, their subscribers are predominantly male yeah. and casually white like yeah. it, it's just part of the culture and it's unfortunate but it's it's there
1: yeah yeah it's it was that was a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. So um, you started at the Connection newspapers. How did you make the jump to Yahoo?
1: Well, I mean, so the Connection was a uh, it was a, a chain of like 20, 24 weekly papers. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, writing high school sports and college sports for them. And I was sort of the, the executive sports editor there. So I was running a staff of about four or five people. And then on the, on the side – I was doing hockey writing. I was writing for some magazines, uh, editing some magazines. I was eventually hired by um, AOL to, to um, do the fan house blog where me and Myrtle got to know each other and um, a few others. And then from there, the guy who created the fan house blog network then took over the Yahoo sports blogs, wanted to bring me on and uh, but only wanted to bring me on part time. So mm-hmm. I had to really state my case as to look, you know, give me the reins of this thing Give me enough money to, to, to make it worth my while to leave this newspaper, and uh, and let's just go. I mean, I, I'll work my ass off for you, and, and luckily that resonated, and he <laughs> decided to hire me full-time, and the rest is history. I came on in 2008, um, hired Leahy, because I love this blog, and then off off we went from there.
0: Unfortunately, he got laid off. What's they all got laid off. off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's, uh, but yeah, what's he up to? is this...
1: He's uh he's still kicking around. He's he's got some irons in the fire. I mean him, him Josh, and Danielle, you know, were my staff and mm-hmm. because of the Yahoo, AOL, Oath thing that happened. They all got clipped. You know, Leahy was one I didn't see coming, and, and mm-hmm. I've I've said that on the record as far as being a little bit a little upset about that, mm-hmm. and I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all super talented, and Josh is doing some some freelance stuff. Jen's looking for something, and and I, I, I kind of know. What these opportunities are, so I'm hoping that he gets back in the game pretty quickly. That's good.
0: Yeah. Um, so we we're talking a little bit about how when you started is a little different than it is today. How would you say the job or and mediums have evolved since you entered the industry?
1: I think. The, the, I mean, I think the, the fact that, that it's more uh, multi-platform and multimedia, I think, is the biggest change. You know, when when I started Puck Daddy, it was doing digital journalism. It was just writing, and yeah, there was multimedia facets to it. Um, but but nothing like today, where if if you're doing this job and you don't have a podcast and you don't have a video presence, then um, it's almost like you're not doing the job right. So I think that's the biggest thing is that there's you know I, I do upwards of three videos each week for Yahoo. I have two podcasts on top of of writing the blog, and I think I guess the other thing too is the the social, the social media aspect of it too. I mean you know the I always tell the story about the, the first time I realized Twitter was a thing to pay attention to was the night that Ovechkin and Crosby both had hat tricks in the same playoff game. Mm-hmm. And Crosby after the game complained that the ice crew took too much time to collect the hats in Washington. And I, I tweeted it from my phone and this is way, this is like, you know, this is like 2000, when they were 2009, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I tweeted it from my phone and I got back to my computer and you, you there was all these people that had responded to the tweet like, is this a joke? Is this made up? Because the press conference wasn't on television. So oh. the only way they're hearing it is through this. And I'm yeah. like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> like, uh, this is you now changed the entire game and, and shifted the paradigm on how to do journalism. So uh, that's the other huge change too, is that when I started in 2008, um, there was no Twitter to drop news on every, if you wanted to find my writing in my, insights. It had to be at the blog, but now I think there's a sort of a, um, mandate to put it on Twitter or, or Facebook or other places.
0: Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And that's actually crazy. I didn't see I I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm new to like Twitter and all this stuff, like within the past year. And it's just like, it's crazy to see how many people on there. It's crazy to think that it wasn't
1: even here 10 years ago and and it wasn't even a consideration 10 years ago. Mm. I mean, 10 years ago when we first started doing the blog, uh, the most important thing on the internet vis-a-vis people finding your stuff was getting on uh, websites where, you know, other sports blogs were looking for stories. And, mm. and you, you, yours, you know, on dig or whatever, and you're hoping your stuff got upvoted so it gets on the front page of things. Yeah. And, like, it's it's crazy to think that it's changed so much. Although, the the one similarity is that it's still all about gaming the system mm-hmm. you know on those sites you used to get your friends to upvote your stuff and and your your co-workers to upvote your stuff so you get featured mm-hmm. and now on social media i mean we'll just buy followers and you know just yeah. to have bots retweet their stuff to make it look like they've got more traction than they do
0: and half of it are sex bots which is
1: just so that's crazy. most of my followers yeah
0: it's so weird to me like i don't know um... But on that note, for talking about upvotes, <laughs> please rate and subscribe. We would really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, you, have, you mentioned you have two podcasts. You have very differing co-hosts. Yeah. You're kind of on opposite spectrums if you really wanted to say going on Yeah, one's line. an American. Right. <laughs> um, so, what do you think you bring from one to the other?
1: As far as what I bring to the podcast or whatever? No, you learn from one that
0: you oh, bring to the other. Well,
1: I mean, you know, in in doing the podcast with, with Merrick, I mean, like, you know, my role on that podcast a lot of times was to be, um, you know, he was the smarts and he was the insight and he was telling stories about you know, important things and and interesting things. And then I was the one who occasionally had to steer it back to nonsense and, Mm. and, uh, and, uh, hot takiness and ranting about stuff and, and bringing in that perspective to it and kind of that, that balance of it really made it work. And then on Puck Soup, like I had to be more of the host and Dave's the one who's sort of more of the comedic, uh, commenter on, on things. So, you know the the thing I love to answer your question in a roundabout way. Like the thing I love about doing those two podcasts is that they are completely different. I mean, they're both in some ways about hockey and in some ways not. They could be really random at times, but like my task on those two podcasts is very different. You know, on one I'm kind of the comic relief. On the other one, I'm comic relief, but also the guy who has to drive the, the ship a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the, and you know, there's no secret that the, the one I do with Merrick is much more analytical and much more. Centered on what's on the ice, and the one I do with Dave is very much just like whatever we decide to talk about. You yeah. Know?
0: Um, so, what goes into developing a chemistry with your co? Oh,
1: just you just find it. I mean, I've, I've been lucky in the sense that everybody that I've ever worked with, whether it's Merrick or or who or, or Rob Pisa before that, I've always had chemistry with them, and, mm-hmm. and 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 in different ways. And I think the key is to find the right chemistry. I, I used to hate Dave, like. A lot, because I thought he was funnier than I was. And I would get pissed <laughs> off and I'd see his shit on Twitter and be like, you know, come on. But then we got to know each other covering Ranger games and we'd sit next to each other and basically do the show. I mean, we would basically just, like, start doing making the Mad Dog impressions and, and all that stuff during the games. So, I don't know. And in Merrick's case, the way it came about was that he... I was looking to do another podcast after Puck Daddy Radio uh, was killed by The Score... And he suggested that he and I do one, you know, because mm-hmm. he was looking for a, a, a thing too. And we always we always had a good rapport when I would do his show on, on Hockey Night in Canada radio. So, I don't know. It's just a roundabout thing. I, 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 I'm, I'm thrilled to have, you know, worked for so long with a couple guys that I, I have chemistry with because I don't think there's anything more painful than... Trying to hear forced, forced chuckles hmm. or, or, you know, forced chemistry with people when you're listening to a podcast.
0: No, for sure. Uh, that, that's one of the hardest things about when you go solo is that you like try to develop a chemistry, but it's really just you're asking the person a question.
1: And I've done a lot of solo shows yeah. on, on, on Sportsnet because Merrick's like super busy and it's tough because it's like, you know, hmm. I, I can get off a, on a good eight minute rant at the top of the show, but don't ask me to like carry the show from there. I need, I need guests. I need callers. Yeah. I need everything else to kind of make it work. A hmm. much, a much better, uh, playing off with people that are trying to do it all myself, I think.
0: Hi there. Sorry for interrupting the interview with Greg. I just wanted to say, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you enjoy the content so far. If you do and are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, if you could be so kind to give us a review, it would really mean a lot. If you're listening to this on YouTube, hit that like button below. Go ahead and leave a comment in the comment section or send me a tweet on Twitter of any guests you think I should have on in future episodes. The handle is Cost Talk, just like the podcast. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast and welcome to the family. Feel free to catch up on any old episodes and share the podcast with as many people as you want. Next week, we did a deep dive with another one of my favorite writers. So deep, in fact, that we might have to cut it into two episodes. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. I actually had a question about. This. So, how does the that podcast work? The Mary First Wisniewski is that hosted on Sportsnet or how's it? Yeah, we okay. we
1: both do it remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes he's in studio, sometimes he's at his house, and we both uh, use a inside baseball. We both we both remotely uh, connect to the board okay. at Fan five ninety or mm-hmm. Sportsnet five ninety, and uh, we have a board up named Sam. And he, he makes sure everything's cool. And Merrick and I are talking like we're in the same room, but we are in different countries. Mm-hmm. And then Dave and I do the show together in person, which is sort of, you know, the, you know we have a couple mandates on Puck Soup. And one of them is that we do the show in person as often as possible. And then the other mandate is that we uh, don't do phone guests mm-hmm. um, and also that we don't do r- hockey players. The only hockey player, The only hockey player we've ever had on that's a current player is McDavid, just yes. because how do you turn that down? But we don't, it's not, the show's not about that. America, me and America are about that. The puck suit's not about that.
0: It's funny you bring up that rule about uh, the no hockey players. Do you kind of wish there's more room for people to be unique within hockey?
1: I do, but I, I think that's a, a, a sea change in culture that has to happen. Like Jack Eichel talked about that this week, actually, at Sports Illustrated. He talked about how, you know, he laments the fact that the players can't be individuals, that the hockey's way too conservative. And Eichel's always a guy who struck me as being. Uh, an enormous personality um, but just knowing that he can't display it the way he wants to and you know part of that is is probably coaching and probably general managers telling guys not to be that way mm-hmm. but at the end of the day like Michael said I mean it, it's about players side-eyeing other players that speak out and are more about the name on the back than the logo on the front and you know the NHL gets a lot of grief for not marketing players correctly or not letting them exhibit their personalities. And like, it's so misplaced. Like the NHL, why why would the NHL possibly not want personalities? Personalities mm-hmm. sell tickets. Personalities uh, make you tune in and watch on television. They, they are all about personalities. It's just the culture of the game uh, means that they can't have them. And, you know, it's not the NHL that killed The trick shot competition at the All Star Game was the Players Association. Really? Oh yeah, no, without question, because those guys felt uncomfortable being put in that spot to perform. The players felt uncomfortable. The players felt uncomfortable. Really? Yeah, so they didn't want to do it anymore, and the and the NHL the NHL wanted to keep doing it. Mm. You know, they loved the they loved it. They loved the idea of them you know putting on goofy hats and stuff. But the Players Association was just like nah, and so that's that's the challenge is. You know, the, NA, the NHL has come to these guys. They've come to Sidney Crosby. They've come to all these players and said, let me, you know, we, we're on NBC. Let's put you on NBC shows. And I'm just like, nah, I don't want to do it. And it's come, you know, I think back in the day when, like, Scott Gomez was on soap operas and stuff mm. and he was to the Devils. And now we have a thing where these guys don't really want to do anything. So it's it's tough. And, and the players themselves, in a lot of ways, are to blame for it. Not only the culture that they they uh, propagate, but also just because they don't they don't want to have to put themselves out there like that. Mm.
0: You can bring up Twitter again. Like they're
1: afraid to tweet anything because well, that's a different animal. Because you know the problem with Twitter is that you tweet the wrong thing and and, and then you have to quit, (laughs) or 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 you you tweet the a funny thing and then all of a sudden it becomes uh, inexplicably tied to your name, like the Jamie Ben thing with uh, uh, Jamie Jamie Ben at one point said he didn't like to go down on women and and it and it's it's stuck. It stuck with him to now it's every time he, his name comes up there's going to be people on Twitter who harken back to that comment and and so it's social media is a different animal I can understand players not wanting to be on there because God forbid you say the wrong thing and, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody like I, I led a, a witch hunt against a couple of guys because I thought what they said was ignorant you know Dan Ellis at one point a former goalie during uh, one of the labor negotiations was talking about how uh, you know Comparing hockey players with brain surgeons insofar as like being a specialized uh, a thing, and it's you know patently ridiculous. One saves lives and one plays a game, and you know and there was another instance of Rocco Grimaldi, who's a you know prospect that's been bouncing around the league a little bit. Uh, you know he's, he was he's sort of a conservative Christian. He was talking about what women should and shouldn't wear. And I found that to be ridiculous, too, so I kind of spoke out about that as well. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing that we can all share ideas like that, but I think at the end of the day, players are very reticent uh, to put themselves out there on social media... Uh, for those reasons, and also because what they say could be quickly misinterpreted. And then once it gets, once that genie gets out of the bottle, you can't stuff it back in.
0: No, for sure. It's, it's a scary place out there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I want to talk about your two books. Um, mm. So the first one, Take Your Eye Off the Puck, how did that come about? Who approached
1: you? A- I had I had a few offers through the years um, to do sort of like a Puck Daddy Guide to the NHL. And, you know, I, I didn't feel the timing was right, and I, I, in a couple cases I just didn't feel the fit was right. And then Triumph Books uh, had this football book called Take Your Eye Off the Ball. It was a really interesting look at, at football beyond the box score, beyond what you see on television. And, and they said, you know, what about doing a hockey book like that? And, you know, the, the original idea was that to do it with a, an ex-pro or somebody like that, and, you know, for various and sundry reasons that didn't come together. So it's like, what if you wrote it? I'm like, what if I did? Mm. And, uh, and so I, t- I took it because I, I felt like the, t- the kind of book that I figured it was going to be was really interesting to me because I, I don't profess to know all there is to know about hockey. I found it to be a a chance for me to go and find out more about certain aspects of the game that I'm, I'm, that are alien to me, like goaltending, for example, like, you know, talking to a couple of goalie coaches and really getting a handle on, on how they prepare and and, and what happens in that split second on the ice and all all those things. So I really, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed doing the book, but it it kind of, they came to me and, and pitched it, and I said, "That's that's a really cool idea. I'd like to kind of do it." And, and luckily, they they allowed me to kind of take it wherever I wanted to go. Where like you know, one of the, one of the chapters is written as a Harry Potter book, and so you know, that's just the same sort of nonsense, but uh, but a different a different venu- uh, venue.
0: And the second one is the 100 Greatest Players, but it was yours, uh, Lozo and Dangos, Dango's Brown. Brown. yeah. Calabrian.
1: that was the real thrill. Like you know, after a while. You just kind of want to see what you're able to accomplish. And especially now that, that we're in, an, in, a, in, a, in a journalism economy where people are paying for subscriptions and, and doing these sorts of things. So you wonder to yourself, if I put something out in the marketplace, what what would the reaction be? Is there an audience for it? Could we maybe make a little coin? Nothing wrong with that. So I came to Lozo and, and, and Sean and said, I have an idea. Like The, the, the NHL is going to release its 100th greatest players list. We all know it's going to be. Total <laughs> um, what if we came out with a, our own list with our own criteria and we put it out before they put theirs out. And I came to them with this idea at the end of like November, probably after, you know, a few glasses of whiskey. And I, I just yeah. thought this is a great idea, you know, to their credit, they're all about it to their credit. They worked their asses off. Um, we all did to kind of put this list together. And I knew the, the key was to get it out before the NHL's list. And uh and we did and it turned it turned a nice profit. I mm. mean, it's something that I think as a model the three of us would do again if the right thing was there. Mm. Uh and uh and, and the best thing about it the best thing about both books, the best thing about Take Your Eye Off the Puck and the 100's Greatest mm. Players book is that they're good. Mm. And and uh and you know, I, I the last thing I ever want to do is put something out in the marketplace to a readership that I really value, uh that's that's bad and that's mm. simply just trying to, you know, take advantage of of their generosity. And so, you know, I'm really happy with the way take your Eye off the puck turned out and I'm really happy people liked the book. Um, and it sold extraordinarily well. So thanks everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm really happy that the book that we wrote was also really funny and, and insightful. And, and also, I mean, at the end of the day, we, our list is great. Like our list is legitimately <laughs> better than the NHL's list where, you know, a guy like Eric Carlson inexplicably doesn't make their list, but makes our list.
0: Malcolm one was the biggest. Oh, that Malkin too. Yeah. yeah but it was also
1: just fun. Like, yeah. you know, establishing the criteria, shooting stuff back and forth. You know, one of the things that you uh, sometimes lose when you do have a smaller staff and you're, and you're not in a newsroom is that camaraderie and like just the, the speed of the emails that would be shot back and forth between the three of us as we were doing that book was a nice, return to that sort of thing where you're just hmm. debating and digging into something altogether. Just a
0: fun side project that, that you just enjoy the process of doing. Yeah, exactly. So what was the hardest part of making, I guess, take your eye off the buck because you said you enjoyed the process
1: of the latter The hardest thing about that was writing it in the season. Like hmm. the, the way that the deadlines were set up, um, a lot of the writing that I had had to be do, done during hockey season. So hmm. it was it was a torturous time for my, my, my wife hmm. um, because, you know, I would... I would write. I would write when when the moment struck me, and when I had the motivation to do so. And usually, it was going to be between the hours of so like ten o'clock at night and two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's rough. Like going to bed alone a lot and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, and and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a sort of a micro level, the biggest issue is that you have to get your um, you have to get your, your 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 motivation up to to keep writing hockey after you're done writing hockey. Mm. and that's a tough thing to do too but, but the, the, the fun part about it was doing all the interviews and getting all that stuff and, and kind of crafting something based on all that stuff it was really fun to talk to some of the people we talked to for the book
0: mm. so I have you on the podcast, I'd be remiss if I did do a couple quick hitters about the NHL this year sure um, so first off um, there's a topic that I haven't seen covered a lot this off season but uh, your co-host Jeff Merrick was a big proponent of it during last year's season mm. we had a condensed season so there was less practice time, which meant there were more goals. Right. Do you think the opposite will happen this year?
1: I think it's, I think it's possible. I think, I think the less practice time is really where the league needs to be. Hmm. And, and there are some teams where it's sort of inexplicable that in a copycat league, more teams haven't looked at Columbus last year or San Jose during their playoff run and, and, and said, okay, the age of our players necessitates that maybe if we take the, our foot off the pedal and give them a little bit more time... And, and, and time to recuperate that that maybe the results are going to be there yeah i think so, i think i think it's a case-by-case case thing and, and in some cases when you have a young team that maybe you, you need to you know spend some time and and uh and uh and and you know do it differently but but i think in the case of like a veteran team you know less practice time is going to be a good thing so i hope i hope the trend stays to be honest with you i just don't know if it will
0: yes no do you think
1: the NHL is going to the olympics no it's not this ship has sailed but like once the once the the member nations uh started formulating plans for you know those players going then it's done I mean the process is there the NHL is not going it's uh and and again like I've written about on puck daddy several times like there's only one one organization to blame for this and it's the It's the IOC. Yeah. Um, You know, you can blame Batman and the NHL all you want, but the bottom line is that the IOC is the single biggest criminal organization in sports, even more so than FIFA. Mm. And, uh, and their refusal to share in the wealth that the NHL helps to create for them in these games Mm. is the reason that they're not gone. Mm. And it's, it's a, it's a joke.
0: Who do you think it hurts more? The NHL because they don't get to expose their brand a little
1: bit or the IOC because they don't have the best product to show? In theory, it should be the NHL, but there's still no palpable evidence that sending players to the Olympics does anything but make us happy. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't grow the brand. And that's the, and that's the reason they're not going. Like if there was a, if there was more of a a chance to generate revenue, Mm -hmm. to not allow another organization to profit off your, your product. um, And then also, you know, increase the brand recognition. To the point where the IOC won't even let the NHL put uh, logos on on the boards, um, then it'd be worthwhile. But I think, I, I mean, the, the answer to your question is hockey fans because mm-hmm. it is it is the best tournament that's ever happened. Um, with all due respect to the to the old World Cup and stuff like that, I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, a gold medal on the line for your country is something that can't be replicated.
0: No, I have the golden goal
1: of Sidney Crosby always yeah, I don't, it. Recall, don't, that.
0: don't, don't, bring it
1: don't recall that. Don't it Don't recall happening. <laughs>
0: Uh, Do you think they actually go in four years when it's in China because they're doing the
1: whole China? Oh yeah, yeah, no, they they. There's so much more money in China. It's it's a it's a it's um, it's without question a market they want to tap. They're bringing games there this year. I mean, it's 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 not even a a comparison. And and uh, and you know, will the real question though is how much animosity is going to be there between these two organizations? And the other question is, what if? the tournament doesn't skip a beat. Like what if the, the, the journeymen and, and college guys and plumbers that are going to play in this tournament end up being more endearing and, and, and get the same numbers ratings wise as the NHL players. And then, and, and you know, the NHL have always said, you know, it would be smart not to go mm-hmm. because the Olympics um, should in theory, build new stars and not simply reestablish the, the ones you have.
0: Mm. I, I never thought
1: it. Well, I mean, think about Peter, like Peter, more people knew about Peter Forsberg from the goal he scored in the Olympics and the potion stamp that he had mm. than anything else before he entered the NHL. He scored a game, he scored a gold medal winning goal and then, and then they put him on a stamp and sweet. Oh, really? Yeah. And so more people, you know, even before he played a game in the NHL, people knew who he was. Mm. He yeah, had all that cachet. So imagine if an American college player scores a, a gold medal winning goal, like that mm. guy's a legend. So that guy's our Paul Anderson. So I
0: should be investing in Kaepernick after his golden goal. Yeah. It, yeah. Precisely. Great. Um, All right, so over at The Athletic, uh, Dom Lushizen. Yeah. Is that right? Sure. Okay. (laughs) It's
1: one of those names I see on Twitter, but I never even conceive how to say it, because I know (laughs) I'm never going to have to say it.
0: Yeah. um, Has been doing season previews. Uh, He put the Devils last. Yeah. um, Which is saying something, because the Avalanche and Golden Knights do exist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is your outlook as a
1: objectively
0: and subjectively
1: because you are a fan. Um, I mean, I, I think they're going to be all right. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, and I say that because I think that they have a little bit more offense than last year, which was really the, one of the bigger issues. And the other big issue is that Corey Shetter had an incredibly dark year. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's natural to expect he's going to bounce back. His goaltending can cover up a lot of the issues they have on their blue line. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, you know I think losing Zajac really sets them back a little bit. They could have been actually respectable without him there. Um, but uh, now you're a little bit worried about the center spot just because you're going to go with the kid and, and a few of the others. I, I think they're going to be better, um, and and I think they'll probably be not, not last in the NHL unless they're trying to be. Mm-hmm. In which case, you come back to the problem they had during the Austin Matthews draft, which is Corey, oh, yeah. uh, Corey Schneider playing well in a season when you just want to be bad.
0: Well, so basically, you're saying he sort of hinges on Corey Schneider, yeah, no, right?
1: yeah, exactly, because I think I think. He's the kind of goaltender where if he has the season he had a few years ago, uh, it, it dramatically changes the fortunes for that team.
0: Are you of the opinion that his timeline sort of doesn't align with uh, everyone else's?
1: Um, I'm of the, of the thought that he should be traded. <laughs> because I, I, I think that he's... Um, like I said, I mean, this is a team that, that is a few years away from contention. Mm. And, and I think that his presence there really mess with their ability to win the lottery when they show up in the lottery mm. rather than winning it in a year where there isn't a, a Matthews or McDavid there.
0: No, for sure. Um, so who is a better preseason acquisition, Thomas Vanek by the Canucks or Pierre Lebrun by the Athletic?
1: <laughs> Pierre Lebrun, because he's going to be there for more than one year, <laughs> I would yeah. imagine. But uh, no, it's the, the Vanek thing. I mean, Vancouver is sort of an inexplicable team, but you know, it's good, good for Vanek to keep getting work.
0: I think they're doing the, the Leafs thing that they did a couple of seasons ago where they sign guys for one-year deals and then ship them off at like the
1: trade Well, that's so what the Devils have done for the last couple of years. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. you you sign Lee Stempniak and you get him a bunch of goals and then you trade him for a third-round pick. Mm. So the ratio of special as it's become.
0: And the last question is, uh, in the most respectful way, when the Leafs inevitably win a Stanley Cup this season, am I allowed to be happy? Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, you could be happy. Because I think uh, there's a huge difference between you know, being happy your team finally won a cup for the first time mm-hmm. since the 60s and, and, uh, celebrating the inevitable playoff appearance of a team that, that has the best player in the world on its roster.
0: Mm. So that was your big sticking point. It was just, the, the I just playoff. thought it was stupid. Like you, yeah. you, you, you won
1: McDavid. <laughs> this was, this was, this was a expected, understandable, inevitable result. Mm-hmm. And to treat it like they did, where they just, you know, like they, they won the lottery again, was just very bizarre for me as Oilers fans.
0: One of the happiest moments I've ever had as a fan was the Oilers striking fourth in the Austin Matthews draft. <laughs> me and my friend were so much happier about that, that the Leafs yeah. made it to top three and it wasn't it the Oilers. Would have been, it would have been like anything Armageddon to, yeah. if they had won the lottery again that year. If they had Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, there, there's no more yeah. NHL. It's, they're the Golden State Warriors. It's another dynasty, which isn't a bad
1: thing, but, but in that case, it would have been a bad thing. Mm. They already had one.
0: So to close out every episode, uh, I have a, a segment where I have my guests ask the next guest a question. Okay, It builds a little bit of continuity, and the question I find represents the person asking it and the person answering it. So your question comes from John Corbin, my last week guest. What do you do, and not in the sense of what job do you have? But what is your purpose? What were you put on Earth? Your-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no other uh, option than to uh, entertain. I mean, that goes back to high school where I was a you know, voted class clown and, and whatever. And, 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 you know, it's, and, I, and I think entertaining can be a lot of different things. It could be being funny. It could be informing people. Um, it could be you know, providing diversion. But also it could be taking on the issues of the day and uh you know trying to rally people to your cause so mm. I-, I guess the broad definition of entertainment is what what i would do i wish it was something more altruistic like you know solve poverty or <laughs> love my kid but you know mm. i'm pretty i'm probably better at like making my kid laugh than actually like doing anything else for her so
0: a real parrot. <laughs> oh God! I don't. I'm. My, I'm having my first uh, oh. wedding in my friend group, and it's. Yeah. It's, scary. it's getting there, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, do you have a question for the next guest?
1: Yeah. What is the uh, the best science fiction movie that takes place entirely? The the majority of it takes enti- uh, takes place entirely in space. So there can be framing devices on different planets. But the majority, let's say over 50% of the movie, takes place in space.
0: Great question. My answer, movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Greg, for coming on the podcast. I know your time was yeah, especially in Toronto, but I'm genuinely appreciative My of pleasure. coming on. Thanks for
1: having me.